So what I want to do this morning right now, I want to begin by reading verse 1. We're going to essentially read through the whole chapter. I'm going to make a few comments and I want to make a few observations at the end. And we'll see where it goes from there. Verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, He went out with His disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden. Uh, Kidron was a little valley. It wasn't very big. It was on the uh, southern, it kind of wrapped around the southernmost eastern part of the actual city of Jerusalem. Uh, most of you, oftentimes, when you see pictures of the wall of Jerusalem or the city of Jerusalem, you either see you know, two predominant pictures. It's either one, uh, you know, where everybody's at what's called the Big Western Wall, in the Wailing Wall, where you see a lot of Jews kind of in their robes, kind of praying against the wall, and they're putting scriptures in the passage, you know, the big wall I'm talking about? Yeah? You see the big Dome of the Rock? That's one of the main uh, pictures we see. Or the other picture is this. It's a picture or a view that's taken from what's called the Mount of Olives which was sort of a descent going down into this valley. And the valley actually that you see is the Kidron Valley. And from this particular angle, you see what's called the eastern side of the city. And then you see the big dome of the rock right there, that big golden dome, which is a Muslim holy site. And so what happens is Jesus would have been in the city of Jerusalem, um, somewhere in the city, and he probably at some point would have made his way out of that upper room. We don't even know exactly where that's at. And as he was walking out of that upper room through sort of the curvy streets that sort of weaved their way through the city of Jerusalem, he would have come out probably what would have been known as what's called the Eastern Gate. It's not really identified, or actually it's closed up to this day. There's a whole history behind that, we'll get into it. Um, and so Jesus would have walked out of this Eastern Gate, and right looking down would have been this valley that was the Kidron Valley. One of the interesting ironies of Jesus coming out at this particular time um, at this particular moment, would have been kind of strikingly just almost paradoxical, almost very ironic, was the fact that this time of year was the number one celebration for all Jews called Passover. It was the main type of ceremony that they would celebrate in recognizing redemption. That God took them out of a sinful nation, God redeemed them, pulled them out of this nation, set them free, then ultimately gives them the law, the Torah, there on Pentecost, and then now they're a nation that is no longer having to be subjugated by foreigners or by evildoers, and now they're free to serve God. That's what they're celebrating. But one of the ironic things here, one of the interesting things here, is that a lot of historians have told us that this time of year, because it was sort of a, a celebration, um, many, many Jews would make pilgrimages to the city of Jerusalem. Um, some scholars, historians, theologians believe that there were as many as, as a one million, perhaps even more, um, pilgrims making their way to Jerusalem around this particular time. Everybody's getting ready because the next day would have been sort of full of all sorts of festivities. We're told also by other historians that when you think about this, a million people, and we're talking these are like families, kids, grandmas, um, they would bring their lamb to be offered by the priests and to be sacrificed. And, and this, I mean, you've got to imagine, this is a whole system going on here. Um, the religious system, they were making money hand over fist this time of year. They were selling sheep because what happens is you got this religious system that they were basically trained in such a way to really um, take a look at your sheep and if they didn't like your sheep, they were like, ah, the sheep ain't going to work. You need to buy one of ours. Well, how much is it? Oh, about four times the amount of yours. You're kidding. Well, I guess you're not going to offer sacrifices to God. Well, I guess I've got to pay it because I want to offer sacrifices to God because I love God. And so these people are ripping off people. So a lot of scholars and theologians believe that there were as many as 150,000 sheep slaughtered every Passover. 
Think about that. That's a lot. And these, these, these were sheep that were one year old. Alright? Not big, ugly, with, you know, just smelly, with big birds in their skin. We're talking cute little lambs. Alright? The kind of just like you look at and, and you're like, I want to cry. You know, just they're so cute. Right? That, that type of lamb. 130, 150, maybe 200,000 of them slaughtered. Um, there is a tradition that as it was written that as they were slaughtered on the altar, they had these little um, um, canals or channels that would basically take the overflow of blood and they would come off of the altar down this little vat, down out to the eastern side of the wall and the wall, because uh, it just sort of drained into this little valley, literally blood and water and all sorts of other entrails and things like that would flow down into the Kidron Valley and just sort of form kind of a little brook mingled with mud because sometimes there was a, a brook there, sometimes there wasn't, depending upon the time of year, depending upon the type of uh, seasonal conditions they had. And so here's Jesus literally crossing this, this little brook, this little Kidron Valley, perhaps filled with the blood of lambs. A, a gruesome reminder of the very fact that the very next day, He Himself will be the Passover Lamb. He crosses over the brook Kidron, into, the, into this area called um, Gethsemane, which was an olive grove, which is actually still there to this day. Um, in fact, a lot of people believe that the very olive trees that are there are, are the very same olive trees that were there back when Jesus was there. I mean, olive trees, when, when they don't, if they die, uh, maybe the branches die, but the actual trunk continues to live. And so what happens, it shoots out new shoots, new branches, and then those kind of grow. So literally, you can have a tree that's 2,000 years old. So a lot of people look at this and they say these trees that are there perhaps could have been the very trees that were there back when Jesus was there. So that's kind of an interesting uh, reality. And it says in verse 2, Now Judas who had betrayed him also knew of this place for Jesus had often gone there with his disciples. So this is a place some of the other gospel accounts tell us Jesus went often to the spot and he prayed. Judas knew about it because he knew this is where Jesus would like, like to go to go pray, hang out with God. Verse 3, so Judas, having procured the band of soldiers and some of the officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, he went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Okay? Um, in the actual original language, it speaks of a cohort. Now, a cohort in uh, Scripture uh, usually identifies between 600 to 1,000 soldiers. All right? And it's very likely that this was like a full cohort. Because, now again, you've got to remember this, here's Jesus... And he kind of has sort of this renegade crew of religious leaders following him. You've got to understand something about the way that Romans worked. Rome, when they subjugated particular areas, they, did not, they, they were not tolerant towards any types of upheaval. They wanted peace. You know, they didn't want people fighting and looting and ripping off, ripping off each other. They wanted peace. So one of the ways that they procured peace was to make sure that there you know, was a high... A population of soldiers, right? That kind of cuts, you know, people down who want to cause a lot of trouble. And just in case people were still causing trouble, one of the other means that they would use to curb violence is they would take offenders, crucify them, they'd put them on the main road. They would literally put people dying horrible deaths on the main road with a sign over their head that said, this guy, you know, killed four people. 
It was basically a very clear warning sign to anybody walking into that city thinking about causing an uprising to think again. Uh, don't mess with Rome. That's exactly what the message was. So those pictures that we have in our minds of Jesus being crucified on a hill, erase that. It's not how He died. He would have died on the road in the most trafficked road so that everybody who walked by would see Him would be afraid. Don't mess with Rome. That was the picture. So here's what happens. These guys come into the garden, not only a cohort, maybe 600, 1,000 soldiers, but we're also told Pharisees and Sadducees. These would have been religious leaders. The interesting thing about all this is all of these guys hated each other. Pharisees were not friends with Sadducees. Pharisees were religious legalists. I mean, these guys took it, looked at the Bible and said, we will live according to the Bible. We won't change. We won't flounder. We won't fake it. We, you know, and the funny thing is, is they did, right? Jesus is acting for that. But these people set out and they said, we will do everything that the Bible says. The Sadducees were a little bit more like, we don't really care. They're liberal in their perspective. They were more interested in money. These were the guys that sort of set up the whole racket um, to make a lot of money there in the Temple Mount. Remember that Jesus goes in and starts throwing over money, ta- money uh, tables. This is part of the racket that the Sadducee system set up. These were the aristocrats. All right? And then the, uh, the Temple Police or the Romans, everybody hated the Romans. Nobody liked the Romans. They were just sort of a necessary evil there to take care of riots should they ever arise. So these three parties come out together to Jesus. I want you to imagine this in your mind. Here's Jesus in the garden praying. What's Peter, James, and John doing? They're sawing logs, man. I mean, they're they're, they're there. They're committed, right? All the way to the very end. They're sleeping, right? Jesus is praying. He's praying. He's seeking God. He knows exactly what's about to happen. He knows exactly what's coming, right? There's... Imagine in your mind, between 600 all the way to potentially 1,200 people with torches, swords, and armor clanking through the garden to arrest Jesus. Jesus stands up. In verse 3 it says this, So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers and chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And then Jesus, knowing... Again, notice this. Knowing. Jesus knew all of this was about to happen. He says, He came forward and He said to them, Who are you guys seeking? Love this. It's like Jesus, I mean, He knows. Who are you guys looking for? Right? It's like a thousand guys. They're angry. They want blood. Jesus like, Who are you guys looking for? Verse 5, it says, And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am He. I believe there's a powerful statement in that. I think it is definitely in line with the rest of the I am statements that Jesus makes. Probably a very clear claim to divinity that Jesus is not just Jesus from Nazareth. Right? He's not just some guy from a local city. And he's not just a rabbi. But he is God. He is God in the flesh, come for a specific purpose. He says, I am. And all of a sudden says, Judas... Um, who betrayed him was standing there but with them, and then Jesus said to him, I am he. And then they all drew back and they fell to the ground. So I want you to picture this, okay? It's kind of even hard for me to imagine this. But Jesus says, I am he. 
And then all of a sudden, 1,200 people fall down. I, mean, I just can't even begin to imagine what took place in that moment. Jesus speaks, I am He. And it's like the power, the majesty, the greatness of Christ speaks forth and everybody falls down to the ground. There's just something about Jesus as if He's like saying, listen, I am God, but I will hold back the fullness of my power. I'll just give you a little taste of it. Right? So they all fall down. But I love this because you just got to read this. And it goes on. Verse 6, when Jesus had said this, I am He, they all drew back to the ground. Verse 7, so He asked them again. So everybody stands back up, dusts themselves off, you know, redeem their composure, and then He asks again. Now who did you say you guys were looking for? Alright? And uh, it goes on, it says, and they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, He says, I told you that I am He. And so if you seek Me, let these men go. And this was to fulfill the word that was spoken. Of those... Whom you gave me, I've lost no one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servants, and he cut his right ear off, and the servant's name was Malchus. At that particular point, some of the other gospel accounts were actually told what happens. John doesn't tell us this. Uh, Jesus literally sees the ear on the ground of the servant, picks up this ear in the middle of this commotion. Right? If you saw Mel Gibson's movie. Passion of the Christ. Remember the scene. Jesus picks up this ear and heals it. I just, to me, I'm, I'm amazed that Christ, even in this moment of intensity, still is healing, still is demonstrating kindness, still is demonstrating mercy here in this particular moment. Verse 11 says this, And so Jesus then said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. He says, Shall I not drink of the cup that my Father has given to me? In the other Gospel accounts, Jesus basically says, Peter, don't you understand at this moment, I've got to do what I'm called to do. I'm paraphrasing, of course. He says, if, if I wanted to, I could have called for a legion of angels to come down and they would have wiped out every single one of these people here to arrest me. Don't you understand, Peter, I'm living a script. There's a story that's unfolding, Peter. It's a narrative. I wrote it. I'm living it. I'm not going to let you interrupt it. Peter, don't you? You've got to trust me. I know what I'm doing. It's for this purpose have I come to drink this cup the Father has given me to drink. Verse 12. So the band of the soldiers and their captain and their officers and the Jews, they arrested Jesus and they bound Him and they led Him away to Annas. It's kind of a crazy story when you think about this. Here's Jesus, right? Lowly, Kind, gentle, little children sitting on his lap, Jesus, right? Literally bound in shackles, being led away by 1,200 men, all right? But he submits to that in verse 13. It says, First they led him to Annas, for he was the father in law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, and it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient for one man to die for the people. So John, again, actually reiterates this statement that was mentioned earlier. It was kind of a prophecy, John says. This is a prophecy that Jesus would die, one man would die for all the people. So it's the picture that he's trying to fulfill. Again, this idea that you've got to get in your mind every little thing that's happening here, you're going to read from John. All of this is happening according to the plan of Jesus, according to the fulfillment of the Scriptures, according to the plan of God. God had foreordained all this. None of it is left to happenstance. Now, it's important for us to understand this. That's how John writes. 
So he goes to this guy, Kai, or goes to this guy Annas. Uh, Annas was a guy that had a lot of issues with the Romans. The Romans didn't like him, so they basically revoked his ability to be the high priest. He was the, kind of the godfather. I mean, he, uh, a lot of uh, ancient scholars have basically written about Annas. This guy was so corrupt. All right, he was literally the guy that led the whole racket there up on the Temple Mount selling the offerings, selling the temple money, all this type of stuff. According to some historians, they believe that Annas was literally bringing in close to $3 million a year. All right? That's a lot of money in our own day, but think about $3 million 2,000 years ago. This guy was making money hand over fist off of people who all they want to do is worship God. You can understand a little bit why Jesus was frustrated. All right? Just a little bit. So he goes to this guy, he's not the high priest, even though he still retains the title a little bit. His son-in-law is now considered the main high priest of that of the uh, Jewish uh, faith. Verse 15, then Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another. So what you're going to see now in the story, it's going to kind of uh, flash to Peter, and then it's going to flash back to Jesus, it's going to flash to Peter again. So if you're writing a movie, you're kind of looking at it, it's kind of the camera, the scenes are going to change between Jesus and Peter. Now it goes to Peter. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. And since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. And so the other disciple who was known to the high priest went in and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch over the door and brought Peter in. This other disciple, quote-unquote, is probably John. Probably John. I wrote the book, right? So he's kind of writing about himself in sort of the third person. And he says, hey, I know people in there. And I got to get Peter in there, so I brought Peter in there. We kind of went in there and hung out, and there's a servant girl there who's talking to Peter. Verse 17, the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you are also, aren't, aren't you also one of this man's disciples? And then he said, I'm not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing, and they were warming themselves. And then Peter was also with them standing and warming himself. Now the scene moves back to Jesus. Standing, being questioned. Verse 19, it says, And then the high priest then questioned Jesus about the disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him. He says, Everything that I have spoke, I spoke openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple. And where all the Jews come together, I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? So here's Jesus basically making his defense, saying, Listen, I have never done anything or said anything in private. Everything I've done, I've always been open about it. And yet you guys accuse me of basically uh, creating a stir and a controversy. It's as if Jesus is saying, look, I'm not the one that created the controversy. I'm not the one that's creating the problems here. It's you guys. All right? He's like, I've done everything openly. I think it's, the implication is, you guys have not been open. You guys have not been transparent. And what happens is they sense something in Jesus' voice, and it says... Um, why do you ask me? Jesus says, um, ask those who have heard me and what I have said. They know what I have said. In verse 22, when he had said these things, one of the officers who was standing by Jesus struck him on the face with his hand and it says, is this how you're to answer the high priest? And then Jesus answered, if what I said was wrong, bear witness about what I said was wrong. But if what I said was right, then why do you hit me? Anderson said, sent him bound to Caiaphas, his son-in-law, the high priest. Now it switches back to Simon Peter. Now Simon Peter was standing and he was warming himself at the fire. 
And then they said to him, you also were one of his disciples, weren't you? And he denied it. And he said, I'm not. He says, one of the servants of the high priest, the relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, didn't I see you in the garden with them? And then Peter again denied it. And at once the rooster crowed. You see, earlier what had happened was, literally earlier in that night, Jesus was sitting down with his disciples, having a meal. And then Jesus, after he washed the disciples' feet, tells the disciples, he says, listen, one of you guys are going to betray me. That's how everything's going to go down. It's all going to begin by one of you guys betraying me. Everyone's kind of freaking out, thinking, who's going to betray Jesus? Right? And so they start talking back and forth. Making signals back and forth. You think it's me? You think it's me? I mean, everybody's uncertain, which is kind of interesting because nobody really even expects or suspects that it's Judas. Crazy. But at that particular point, Jesus stands up, and then Peter stands up, and he goes to Jesus. It's like he whispers in his ears, like, listen, Jesus, these other guys, they're disciples. These guys are weak. They're fools. But not me. I'm really strong and I love you, and I'm passionate. Jesus, I will never betray you. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, Peter, listen, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. You want the truth, Peter? The real truth is, you will deny me. And so what happens is in this particular point, you get this picture, Peter does deny Christ, and all of a sudden John tells us that little statement, at once the rooster crowed. Verse 28 it says, and they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters, and it was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not become defiled so that they could eat the Passover. This is kind of an interesting picture here because what happens is um, in Jewish concept and understanding, they had this idea that if you were a Jew, a good Jew following Torah, for you to walk into the house of a, of a Gentile or a Goyim or a non-believer, then you would become defiled. He would basically take upon the defilement that they live under and they would basically become yours. And so, in their minds, uh, they didn't want to become defiled and so they essentially said, we're not going to go into Caiaphas' house. You see the same thing actually depicted even in the disciples. After Jesus rose again from the dead, gave His Holy Spirit, and the church is growing, right? In Acts chapter 10, remember Peter? He's somebody he's called to go to this guy by the name of Cornelius. Cornelius was a Roman centurion. And Peter goes to his house and you know, Cornelius is like, what's up, Pete? Come on in. And he's like, you know, normally I can't come into people's houses like you. But God gave me a dream last night that said, it's okay. The interesting thing is, is this idea of becoming defiled is not found in any teaching in the Torah. Anywhere. You won't find any verse in the Bible anywhere that says, stay away from Gentile houses. But what you will find is an interpretation of the Torah. Remember, this is what Jesus says. You guys take the traditions of men and you make them the law of God. This is why, for example, when Jesus would go hang out with prostitutes and heretics and tax collectors and sinners and actually sit down in their house and eat, everybody was freaked out by this. Everybody thought... You know, we thought this guy was going to be the Messiah. But obviously he's not. Because Messiahs keep Torah and tradition impeccably. This guy failed. But Jesus says, you guys teach his, the traditions of men as if they're the Word of God. That's where you err. Think about this. We as Christians, we're really stinking good at this, aren't we? 
Isn't it amazing how we come up with all sorts of traditions and we say good Christians are those that use and have Thomas Kincaid paintings. It's a good Christian. Right? Good Christians wear certain clothes or good Christians don't wear makeup or good Christians have a bun. Right? Wherever you live, you know, good Christians, you know, fill in the blank. We have all of these things that we we, we, we make that are marginal in the Bible. They're not in the Bible. They might come as being rooted from the Bible, but they're not the Bible. And here's the thing. We've become churches in the modern day world that's not known for the Bible, but for the life that God gives, but for all the rules and standards and traditions we lay down and say, good Christians are this. And so here's these guys basically completely caught up in their own world of contradictions. And they're saying, you know, we, we don't want to defile ourselves. The funny thing is they don't have any problem putting to death an innocent man. Right? No problem. It's like, oh, it's cool. We'll kill Jesus. Right? Heal people. Gave food. Took care of a bunch of nice, you know, hurting people. He was nice, kind. Kids love him. We'll kill him, but we don't want to go into uh, you know, Pilate's house as we become dirty. It's kind of the irony of religion. Verse 29, so Pilate went outside and he said to them, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him and said, this man, if you were not doing evil, we would not even have delivered him over to you. But then Pilate then said to him, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to them to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And then so Pilate entered his headquarters again. This is just between Pilate and Jesus. And he called Jesus and he said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered and said, Do you say this on your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? And then Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests I've delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. And then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king, and for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into this world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And the Pilate says, what's truth? After all, he said, after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and he told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man to you at the Passover. So you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, no, we want Barabbas. Now Barabbas, John tells us, was a thief. The point that he's making is clear. All of this is part of a divine story of which Jesus is the main player, the main character. And what, what I want to look at, sort of summary here, some things with regard to this I just find interesting in terms of the irony of this. Um, first of all, in terms of this whole picture of God being in charge of all of this whole thing, First of all, I notice is this, is that not only is Jesus the author of this divine narrative, but again, he's the main subject. I've already mentioned that. He is the main subject of this whole thing. That literally means, because if you've asked this question, you know, I mean, 
if you or I, if you or I had the privilege of like foreknowledge, you know, if we knew what tomorrow was going to be like, aside from being bookies, I think we would try to do everything that we can to like protect our lives, to, to do things, to make sure that we're not going to get in trouble, or if we knew if there was a way that I can dodge death, or dodge a type of death that just seems really bad, we would do it. See, here's the interesting thing is, Jesus knows He's going to die. He knows He's going to be betrayed. And betrayal is one of the most heart-wrenching, most disturbing things that anybody can go through. If you've ever been through a divorce, you know what betrayal feels like. It's horrible. If you've ever been through a horrible breakup with somebody you've loved, it's one of the most intense pains Jesus' best friend, one of his inner circle, his own disciples, is about to betray him. He knows it. And yet Jesus says, hey, we're going to go to the garden. Why? I'll tell you, there's only one reason why Jesus chooses to go to the garden. Because he knows that's where Judas is going to find him. He goes there. Not only does Jesus write this whole story, but he's the main character in the story. The second thing that I noticed that's sort of an irony in all this is that not only is he God, but he submits to God. Previously, in some of the other chapters of the Gospel accounts, it tells us while Jesus was praying, it tells us that he began to sweat as if great drops of blood. And this is the picture of just intense pain of the reality. He knows what he's about to face. He knows what's about to confront him in terms of the cross, in terms of the betrayal, in terms of the torture, physically and emotionally. And spiritually, he's very well aware of all of this. And yet, one of the things that he grapples with and wrestles with with as he prays to the Father, he says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But Jesus comes to this resolve, and he says simply this. He says, Father, nevertheless, not what I will, but what your will is, let it be done. If it's the cup that you want for me to drink, then I'll drink it. Jesus, in essence, is saying, Father, I will submit to your will. What's beautiful is this is that this is really the picture of our life. And it becomes sort of an exemplary act. I mean, this is why oftentimes Paul will say, follow Christ, follow his example, follow what he did. It's this picture that in the life that we have, we find ourselves oftentimes faced with like our own personal Gethsemanes, right? Where the weight of the world is upon our shoulders and we're left between two decisions. There's a tension that goes on inside of our hearts. I mean, are we going to obey God? Are we going to disobey God? Are we going to follow after righteousness? Are we going to just continue to follow after you know, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and other things that sort of pull us and target us? Kind of our own personal Gethsemane. And sometimes we're kind of left with this feeling of like, well, I don't really know what to do. Well, we can do what Jesus did. Father, Your will be done. I submit myself to Your will. To your plan. I don't know where it's going to take me. I mean, we, we, again, we don't have the privilege of foreknowledge. Jesus did. But, but that's where that concept of faith comes in, where we say, God, I don't know where it's going to lead me. I don't know what it's going to, where it's going to take me. I don't know exactly the outcome of it, what it's going to be. But this, this, is, this is your will, and I will submit myself to it. Uh, one of the other ironies that I see is this, is not only does Jesus have all power, right? But He exercises restraint. This is amazing to me. Here's Jesus, the King of the universe, right? I mean, here's Jesus who's able to walk on water without a board, right? That He's able to like create food out of nothing, 
out of a little boy's snack, right? Jesus able to literally move in just mysterious, powerful, profound ways. He's able to heal people. He's able to somehow jumpstart, you know, either natural processes to quicken healing, or he's able to just supernaturally speak as something that we don't even know or aware of. It just becomes a miracle. It just happens where somebody's healed in an instant. He's able to raise people from the dead. This is Jesus all-powerful. But he exercises constraint or restraint. This is amazing to me. I mean, again, I already mentioned to and alluded to it earlier. Jesus says, I, I could call down for a legion of angels to wipe out everybody. But he doesn't. I think within this is a beautiful picture that Jesus says, listen, this is how I call you to live. Especially to you men. I mean, Paul's going to pick up on this theme and he's going to play this theme like a symphony. He's going to say, this is how you live, men. With your wives. You might have power. You might be strong. You might have authority in your voice. But exercise restraint. That's why it says men dwell with your wives with understanding, not as an overlord, but as a servant. That's why Paul's going to say in Ephesians, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her. It's this picture of supreme authority, all-powerful God, slash servant. Humble servant. A lot of guys understand what it means to be an authority. They know how to call the call the shots. They know how to control. They know how to manipulate. They know how to open their mouth and hurt somebody. But when it comes to men knowing how to actually be a servant, something where a lot of men don't understand. A lot of men can be servant. They can be humble. They can be almost passive. But they don't know how to lead. Jesus was both. He was all-powerful, yet... Exercise restraint. It's also the same thing that carries over through with husband or with dads. How to be a good father. Love, but learn how to exercise restraint. Guys, men who don't know how to exercise restraint, crush your kids. Crush your kids. Your words will crush your kids. You will rob them of their dignity and you will destroy them. Jesus exercised restraint, but he was all powerful. Here's another picture of in ironic situations, that not only was he spotless or and blameless in God's court, but in man's court he was viewed as evil. This is kind of a curious thing to me because in God's eyes he was the spotless, sinless Lamb of God. And while he's standing before Pilate, essentially these religious leaders, the people that held all the power in their hand, they make this accusation of Jesus. They say, listen, he is evil. I mean, that, that's, that hit me this past week when I heard that. I mean, I've been called a lot of names over the years. Alright? A lot of names. I, I've lived with a lot of accusations. Every one of them is hard for me to swallow. Every one of them. I have never had an accusation and walked out and just been like, Praise Jesus! That was awesome! That just felt so good! Having my character belittled like that. It's just a wonderful feeling. Alright? Uh, but here's Jesus. I mean, the reality is, some of those accusations about me might even be true. To some degree. Not so with Jesus. Perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb of God. But called evil. 
All right, here's two more and we're done. Not only is the king of Jews, but he's also rejected by the Jews. King of the Jews, Pilate says, you're the king of the Jews, yet they rejected him, called for a thief. The final thing I notice is this, is not only king over all things, but he submits to all earthly powers. Okay, here's Jesus. He's in this courtroom with Pilate. And he could have just destroyed Pilate. He could have just destroyed Pilate. But instead, he's, just, he's speaking humbly to Pilate. He's the king of all things. And again, Paul is going to take this picture of Christ before Pilate and before these not only religious, but also civil leadership. And he's going to say, listen, to those of you that are around the world trying to follow Christ, serve Jesus, do just the way Jesus did. He was in the world, he wasn't of the world, but Paul's going to use that and say, therefore, pray for every earthly leader. Submit to all earthly powers. Pray for government officials, because they are God's servants on the earth. How are Christians supposed to respond to civil government? With respect and prayer and love. Why? Well, quite simply, because Jesus did. Jesus did. Jesus did. Okay, with that being said, I want to finish up with this. Is that as we look at this, I've mentioned there's this theme all the way throughout it that says God is over all things, all powerful over all things. Again, it's this concept of God's sovereignty. Everything's a script. Everything is this narrative that God wrote. Jesus fulfills it. All of it. It's not happenstance. It's not accidental. God's not shocked by it, not surprised. How did this happen? I'm God. I had no idea the cross was going to take place. God knew from the very beginning. In fact, we're even told passages such as Christ was crucified before the world began, slain before the world, before the ages. It's this idea that this plan was always in the mind and the heart of God even before He created us and we sinned and we belittled God and we went on our own path disbelieving God, continuing to add sin upon sin upon sin upon sin until God gets to the point where He says, listen, I am in control. I am in control. You can either join me in my story or you can continue to think that you're writing your own story, living in rebellion, and constantly butting your head against everything and ultimately belittling me to the point of final judgment where I will have my way, you will be judged, or you can surrender, join my story, realize that I'm in charge of all things, trust me that my ways are best for you, and join me. Take a look at this. Contrast. Peter. He had no way of understanding what was going to happen. So Peter, with his limited knowledge, basically says, here's what I think is going to happen. If I don't work, if I don't do something, everything that I've worked hard for for these past three years, i.e. the kingdom of God, Jesus becoming you know, great and superior, and me and my bros sitting on the right hand and the left hand of Jesus, having authority and supremacy with Christ, all that's going to go down the tubes. So I love this, because here's what Peter does. He whips out a sword, and he's about ready to take on 600 to 1,200 people. I mean, Peter, I think, oftentimes gets slammed by preachers. Alright? I've done it myself. And I think it's kind of unfortunate. I think, honestly, out of all the apostles, Peter's the bravest. I mean, think about it. This guy, he's ready to take on 1,200 
Roman soldiers. It's because he loves Jesus. All right? And so Peter reacts in a way that he thinks is appropriate. Jesus rebukes him. He says, Peter, you don't understand. You're not trusting the narrative. You're not trusting my plan. You're not trusting the fact that I'm in control of all of this. Right? Contrast that with this. There's a guy, I've quoted him many times, a guy named Samuel Rutherford. He's a pastor. He lived in Scotland, thrown in prison. Um, real difficult times in Scotland during the time when he lived. And while he was in prison, he had written a lot of letters to a lot of people that were in his church. People that were suffering. People like you and I that are going through hard times, trying to figure life out. People that you know are going through divorces. Kids running away from home and crops aren't coming in and they lost their job or the trailer on their buggy, you know, wheel on their buggy fell off and, you know, just the type of stuff that we go through, right? And uh, so he's writing to a lot of these people words of encouragement. But Samuel Rutherford was one of these guys that even in the midst of his dire circumstances of difficulty, he recognized, you know what, even though I don't always see it, I know that God's got a plan and he's in control of all this stuff. Here's how this affected his life. Here's what he wrote. He says, oh, what I owe to Christ's file. You know, file. File things down with. And his hammer into the furnace. Who has now graciously allowed me to see how good the wheat of Christ is that goes through the mill and through his oven ultimately to be made bread for his table. Grace tried is better than grace because it is more than grace. It's glory in its infancy. So here's what Samuel Rutherford says. Listen, my life's hard. It's difficult. I feel like my life has been like a grain of wheat, crushed, broken, put through the mill. But one of the things that God has done is He has been so kind and so gracious to allow me to see that I'm wheat being processed to be made a loaf of bread for His table. hard. It's difficult. But this is all for him. He's got plans and I just don't understand. I can't comprehend. Grace is tried. Grace tried is even better than just regular grace because grace tried is great is glory in its infantile stages. Love that. Listen to how another guy speaks of this concept of going through trial tribulation, hardship with an understanding of God in control of all things. His name was William Cooper. Um, the story is a little bit unverified, but I'll tell you to you anyhow. It's a story about how he came to write this song. It goes something like this. This guy, William Cooper, you'll probably recognize the song when I, when I, write it, or when I uh, read it to you. I'm not going to sing it to you. Um, um, I love you guys too much. But um, anyways, um, basically what had happened was this guy struggled with depression throughout his life. He was a young guy, maybe like in his mid to late 30s. Had a hard time, a lot of things. He struggled with depression. Really struggled a lot with, does God love me? I know probably none of you deal with that, but just in case you did, William Cooper struggled with that. Okay? And so one of the things that what happened was this particular time when William Cooper was struggling with whether or not God loved him, was very depressed, he decided one day, I'm going to just kill myself. I'm going to end it. So he calls a cab driver back in those days. You know, it was just like, it wasn't like these yellow cabs. It was like some dude driving a horse-ridden uh, carriage, you know. So he hops in this back of this cab, 
and he tells them, take me to the river. As they're on their way to the river, because Cooper, you know, his intent is to jump in the river and drown. All right? He wants to kill himself. As they're going to the river, this massive, thick fog bank comes in. And they can't find the river. I kid you not. They're like, can't find the river. Like, where's the river? And all of a sudden, the cab driver catches this idea that maybe this dude's not all here. and you know, Maybe I'll just drive him back to his house. Goes back to the house, opens the door, and Cooper's back at his own home. Walks upstairs, sits down, composes himself, realizes God obviously didn't want me to kill myself. Sits down and he writes this song. Listen to the words. God moves in mysterious ways. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps on the sea and he rides upon a storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and he works his sovereign will. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so often dread are big with mercy and they'll break a blessing on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan His works in vain. God is His own interpreter, and He'll make it plain. It's just this picture. The only reason why Cooper can write this is because he had this gracious revelation that God I don't understand my life but I know that you're a good God I trust you I don't want to fight against your script your narrative, your story the drama, I want to join it I repent forgive me for questioning it I love that picture we scan his works in vain We look at God, we have very limited knowledge, and we're like, God has failed me. And I wonder how many times God is just sitting up there in heaven, smiling, saying, if you only knew what was on the other side of that mountain. If you only knew. Trust me. Here's how Paul viewed it, and I finish with this. Paul says this, Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. The only way that Paul was able to say that is because he understood that he's part of this ongoing, unfolding plan of God of redemption. God's in control. God's in control. He hasn't lost it. He hasn't floundered. He hasn't forgotten. He hasn't failed. He's always in control. If you're here today and you're still trying to figure your life out, you know, you're, you're trying to still live your life on your own, you realize how futile that is. How difficult that is. How exhausting that is. Guys, it takes a lot of energy to try to control our lives. And then sometimes you just realize it's futile. Or, we can do as these men did and just say, Lord, you purchased my life. I surrender it to yours. Not what I will, but what you will. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. Because that 
is what the Bible calls us to. That's the kingdom of God. Jesus summons us, says, come, be a part of my work. Stop trying to write your own story. Stop trying to belittle God. Stop trying to sin and trying to figure things out and live off of all sorts of alternative schemes and plans that are always, always not only inferior, but belittling to God. Trust Him for His ways. I'm going to pray. We're going to finish. We're going to celebrate communion together here today. Uh, If you're part of our family, that means if you're a child of God, or you're a Christian if you would, you love Jesus, then we welcome you guys to partake of the communion. You don't have to be a part of this church to do it. Just We want to make sure that you love Jesus and you're part of God's uh, kingdom. Uh, Garrett's going to come up and lead us in some worship. And what we're going to do as we partake of communion, typically as we do this, as we uh, have worship going, you can come forward, partake of communion. I encourage you, husband and wives, do it together, celebrate it together. If you have kids, you can bring your kids into it as well. Um, if you're here and you're not a Christian, there's a lot of things that we do that we can do together. We can sing songs together. We can study the Bible together. If you're not a Christian, I encourage you, don't partake of the communion. The reason why I would encourage you to do that is because really communion signifies the relationship that you have with God, that you acknowledge with God through Christ. So we partake of the bread, we partake of the cup, we remember what Jesus did for us on the cross, what He accomplished for us in His death. We're going to respond by giving our tithes and our offerings to the Lord. And if you're one of our guests, please don't feel any obligation to give for people that call this their home church or would love to be able to be part of supporting it. I'm going to pray. We'll sing a few songs of worship, partake of communion together, and then we'll uh, finish up and dismiss you guys. Jesus, thank You for Your grace. We pray that You would give us a bigger picture of who You are and that picture would change us and it would allow us to rest in You, Jesus. To rest in Your power.